Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is Liz Bonny. Liz was born in France, grew up in Ireland, and she studied biochemistry and wildlife biology at university. She has since travelled the world, studying animal behaviour. Her documentaries include Drowning in Plastic, Galapagos, and Should We Close Our Zoos? She's also part of Our Changing Planet, a seven-year project for the BBC visiting vulnerable habitats to chart changes and the fight to save our most threatened ecosystems. Her latest BBC series, Liz Bonin's Wild Caribbean, returns to the region that shaped her childhood and inspired Liz to explore the natural world. Along the way, we meet rare dolphins, enormous crocodiles, brightly coloured birds and giant spiders, as well as the conservationists showing ingenuity and determination in their efforts to protect native species and ecosystems. Let's find out more. Liz, you were born in France and spent your early years there. Where was your childhood home then? And do you still feel connected to your country of birth? I do, very much so. I was born in Paris, but when I was one, we moved to the south of France, to the mountains north of Nice. And whenever I go back to that part of the world with the cicadas and the smell of the air and the pine trees and the dry earth, it feels more like home than anywhere else. So I am still very attached to it. I also love the warmth and friendliness of the people in the south of France, the food, <laughs> uh, the wine. I love that place and I, I'm trying to spend more time there actually at the moment. But my family are from everywhere. And so when people ask me, you know, I, I left France when I was eight, nine years old to go to Ireland. My family are from the Caribbean. My sister and I live in New Zealand. We've always had wanderlust and we can live anywhere. So when people say, where feels like home more than anywhere else? I struggle a little bit, but at a push, I'll go France, even though my formative years were spent in Ireland. Well, it's a charmed existence being able to speak fluent French at nine. I lost it a little bit. Recently, I took some advanced French lessons because I was supposed to make one of our programmes for French channels too. And it was a lovely opportunity to you know, brush, brush up, up my French, yeah. What's the French phrase for brush up? Je, je n'ai aucune idée là. <laughs> je ne sais pas du tout. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> so that just goes to show I'm not completely fluent. Améliorer, améliorer mon français. But I took the French lessons and also I've been talking about this far too long about going back to France, converting one of those little French farmhouses um, and making it my home. I haven't achieved it yet, but that is a dream of mine. You're deeply connected to the Caribbean through both your parents. Just how much time did you spend there? I mean, growing up, and was it largely Trinidad that you visited? Yes, Trinidad and Martinique, because my wonderful grandmother, God rest her soul, was the matriarch of the family. And every time we went to the Caribbean, it was always Trinidad to my mum's family and Granny in, in Martinique, my dad's mum. And we used to go 
all the time. I presume the first time I was put on a plane was when I was one or two years old. And I practically grew up with my cousins in Trinidad, three boys who were like my brothers to me. And then we'd just go to the warm, inviting hub of Granny's house in Martinique with her beautiful garden, with hummingbirds everywhere in the flowers and the food she used to cook. Courbouillon, this amazing sort of simmered fish in tomato broth. All, oh, just that brings back all the the fond memories of your childhood, you know. So it was literally, I think, you know, summer, Easter, Christmas, every holiday that we could, we were back in the Caribbean through all my childhood. So even when we moved to Ireland, I was going back to the Caribbean at least once a year, a year if not two or three times. Sounds utterly idyllic. Absolutely spoiled. We were absolutely spoiled. And so... I spent a vast majority of my childhood barefoot on the grass, in the sea, just immersed in the wonders of the Caribbean's natural places, yeah. Trinidad is part of the Caribbean, yet close to Venezuela, South America, and one of the most, well, biodiverse islands on Earth. Mm. Was there one place or moment here that really made you fall in love with the natural world? That's a really good question. I think I have to say Carony Swamp. Carony Swamp? Carony Swamp in Trinidad. Sounds a bit boggy. <laughs> Sounds a bit boggy. It's this intertidal ecosystem just outside of Port of Spain where the minute you get onto one of the boats and start meandering down the waterways that open up into these sort of vaster bodies of water surrounded by these lush green bushes and trees... There is a real magical sense to the wildlife there, unlike many other places that I've had the privilege of, you know, being immersed in. There's something really special about that place. And I'll never forget as a kid going there, seeing all the birds, the snakes, and then watching the scarlet ibis congregate at sunset as they roost in these huge big green bushes lighting up the bushes like a Christmas tree in their neon red. So it was a, one of the most extraordinary wildlife spectacles that I've ever seen. But it's more of a feeling, John, that stayed with me, that kind of, for me, wraps up the majesty of nature, but also the magical quality of it. That if you keep your heart open as we get older, you know, and we start to prioritise different things in life, if we maintain that childlike curiosity about nature, it changes you and heals you and keeps you joyful in a way that's almost indescribable. You just have to feel it. And Carony Swamp, for me, is that place. Well, we will most certainly return to the Caribbean. But first, I'd love to find out a bit more about your career. You moved to Dublin and studied biochemistry at Trinity College. Sounds a bit raw compared with what you've just been describing. Were these your favourite subjects in school? They were. And, you know, biochemistry isn't remotely raw. It is. It is a way for me anyway. Look, I loved biology and I loved chemistry at school. It just made sense to me. It fascinated me. It lit me up a bit like the natural world does weirdly. So it made sense for me to study biochemistry because it explains how all living systems, all species work down to the chemical equations that explain them. And I just found, it, particularly our immune system, how it works is absolutely extraordinary. All these sophisticated, intelligent mechanisms that allow cells to harness, to come into force, depending on what's happening to you. And then as you sleep, they're all sort of like regenerating and consolidating what they've learned so that the next time they can keep you even healthier should you be exposed to the same microbe. It's extraordinary. So that kind of learning curve for me was just like mind-blowing. I adored it. And I think it set me up well for better understanding, of course, the natural world, but also it, it formed the grounding, the basis of everything else I learned then when it came to all the species we share the planet with. After graduating, you moved to London and had a brief spell in pop music before moving into TV presenting. You've described this part of your career as a crazy adventure <laughs> that you didn't expect to last. How did it all come about? Oh, that's a very good question. It all came about because after studying biochemistry, I decided not to take up the PhD that I had applied for. And actually, it was at Oxford. So sometimes when I'm there working, I look at it and I go, what was I thinking? Because what an experience that would have been too, you know, from Trinity College to Oxford. Mm. There's a real romance to it for me. I just thought... But you might never have stopped. <laughs> um, 
that's exactly the thing. I would have ended up working in laboratories for the vast majority of my time. And I'm I'm a people person. I never stopped talking. And it was a PhD in neurodegenerative diseases, which was wow, fascinating. It followed up from my undergrad thesis, my research project. But I remember thinking, in Trinity College, you also do all the other natural science subjects in the first two years. And then you specialize into whatever you choose, in my case, biochemistry. So I'd got a taste of zoology and I was like, hmm, that's really interesting too. And, you know, having been immersed in wildlife and the natural world all all my childhood, I felt drawn to that too. So I remember thinking, is this really what I want to do? Shall I just take a pause and think about what else I might like to do and maybe do something more to do with conservation and zoology? And I'm going to play for a bit too because I've never taken a gap year. Let me just play. So at the time I was singing in a band at uni. I was kind of playing and drifting. You're a polymath. Um, That's a compliment. I think I was just messing and not really knowing what I was doing. So yeah, when people ask me, oh, look at your path and how you got here, I'm quick to say this wasn't planned. I was a bit of a waster, for want of a better expression, in my 20s. But what it allowed me to do was to drift and to play. And to continue to sing. And then, you know, Dublin's really small. Everybody knows everybody. So I was in this band and this producer at RTE was like, we don't want a presenter to present our music awards. Let's get somebody who's kind of different and fairly well known. And so they asked me to present their Irma Awards, the Irish, I suppose, equivalent of the Brits. And from that, I got another job and another job and another job in telly and got poached by Channel 4 to present Rise. And I just thought to myself, this is fun. I'm in my 20s. I'm just going to go with this until I want to do something else. You know, always knowing that I would go back to academia, always knowing with science being my first love that I would go back. But I just thought, this is an opportunity. I'm having great fun. Let's play. And so I played. But while I was doing that, I worked with producers who taught me how to tell stories, who taught me how to, how would you edit that? How would you, what would you leave out? What would you leave in? And it was a really creative process that I enjoyed. So I got to a point then many years later where I thought, okay, it's time. I want to go back to school. I want to learn more about conservation. And so I applied for a master's here in London to study wild animal biology with the Royal Veterinary College and the Zoological Society of London. And I thought, I'm going to do this, but I'm also going to just see what what if I could stay in TV or do a bit of television on the side after my master's, telling the stories that I'm really passionate about. And that's when I reached out to the agent of all my favourite wildlife presenters and told her, look, here's my entertainment showreel. Here's my master's. If there's any work going, I might be interested. So by this stage, I was working with conservation programmes at ZSL. And my agent started putting feelers out. And the BBC were starting up this new science magazine show called Bango's The Theory. They asked me in. I got the job. And the rest, as they say, is history, I guess. It took off and I... I've been loving every minute since, really. It's really interesting because this is the moment that you decided to combine your expertise in animal life with TV. I think a lot of this is just through not really planning and playing and drifting in my 20s and finding a new passion for storytelling that I never imagined I'd have with my absolute first love, which is science and the natural world. And so when I give talks at schools now, sometimes you see the teacher at the back of the class looking at me going, oh, for God's sake, what are you saying to my pupils? But I say a lot of pressure is put on us to know what we want to do very early on. At 18 years old, I mean, I know I love biochemistry, but I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. And even at 21, when I finished, clearly I didn't know what I was going to do because off I went drifting, you know, for my 20s. So I tend to encourage young people not to put too much pressure on themselves about what equates to success and what you must know you're going to do for the rest of your life. Play a bit. I think that's what your 20s are for. Experiment. Leave the door open to things and walk through those doors when you're given an opportunity because you might surprise yourself and find passions you never knew you had. And I suppose I'm that example of a person who now has found this absolute dream of a job that I'm, I pinch myself every day at how lucky I am to do what I do. Well, I think a lot of people will find what you've said just there very inspiring. Do you think? I do. I hope so. I do, because you seem (laughs) to have had it both ways. I mean, you're not only a a bright button, um, but you're also wonderfully 
gifted in the broadcasting end. Well, that's um, very kind of you. Can I just say as well for any for any of the listeners that either have kids or are thinking about something else that they might want to do, I think that we are all multi-talented. I really do. I think it's just all, a question of tapping it. It's a question of staying open to combining yeah. things. And I think our society has encouraged us to kind of find your thing, focus on it. And it also has to pay a lot of money because that's what success looks like. I'm very much a supporter of stay open, see how many skills you have, because as humans, we're, we're inherently gifted with lots of different things. And that's what I like to kind of tell kids these days to not be under too much pressure to focus it all on. Well, I'm not good at this. I'm good at that. And I must excel at that. So I'm going to really focus on that one. I don't necessarily think that results in the best of who we can be as humans. While you were doing your master's, you studied tigers in Nepal, which sounds really exotic, if dangerous. Uh, (laughs) What made you choose this particular big cat? Hmm. I've always been mad about cats, domestic cats, first of all, (laughs) and then fascinated by their wild cousins. Not only because, you know, yes, let's be shallow, they're absolutely beautiful and they're big charismatic mammals, but it's much more than that. They're extraordinary, solitary animals that have to pull out all the stops to survive. It's incredibly hard to be a tiger out there in the wild, not least because of, you know, human pressures, but their attempts at, at taking down prey, they only succeed one in a hundred times. They have to be the strongest, most resilient, most intelligent creatures to be able to survive in the habitats in which they live. And that's always fascinated me. And tigers in particular, I don't know why. Let me just interrupt you yes. because the idea that they're only successful one in a hundred times is a most shocking statistic. Isn't it? Can it really be true? It is true. And so that's why I like when, as programme makers, we do make programmes from the viewpoint of the predator. Oftentimes, we don't want to see the little deer being killed. We don't want to see predators hunting in order to feed themselves and their family. But when we better understand just what it takes to be a top predator, I think that's really important. And it it points to some extraordinary capabilities, adaptations, how evolution has created these animals that fit a niche, but it's a difficult one to maintain, right? And to succeed in. And so for some reason, I've always rooted for the predators. I don't know where that comes from. I think I'm hazarding a guess here. I can relate to them because I'm quite an independent solitary person. That sounds a bit weird, but I don't know. There are some traits about wildcats that I just really connect with and adore and I'm fascinated by. And so in your master's, you're not exactly encouraged to go do a project abroad because it's a short course. It's not a PhD, but I just had it in my head that I wanted to study tigers in some capacity. And so there was an opportunity in Nepal and I dug my heels in and I fought hard to make it work. And about three months into trying to develop this master's research project, my supervisor, all of my friends in the course were saying, Liz, it's time to give up. Like, it's not going to work. It's very hard to set up the project. There's no existing one in this national park called Bardia. It was just too ambitious. Of course, stubborn Liz here, didn't listen to any of them, found herself in Kathmandu with none of her lab equipment. None of it had arrived. Nepal is a wonderful place and the people are extraordinarily kind, but it's a different culture where they often say, yes, 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 when they actually don't mean yes, yes, yes. They may not know, but they're just trying to be polite. (laughs) So a lot of things I had misinterpreted and I got there. I remember crying in my little hotel room the first night going, I'm going to fail this. This is a lesson for me. Sometimes it's not worth it being this stubborn. Anyway, all this to say, long story short, eventually after a lot of a lot of complicated communication back to London, etc., I managed to carry out my research project. And this is going to sound a bit arrogant, but I came first in my year for my research project. And so at that time during the prize giving, I remember thinking, hmm, so what is the lesson here? Not to give up even when everybody else tells you to, and to stick to your guns and work really hard and make it happen if you really want to make it happen because look at what the results can be. Well, talking of giving up, is the tiger an endangered species? Oh, absolutely. For the main subspecies, the Bengal, you know, there's all these different figures being bandied around, but we are still talking about 5,000 roughly individuals. Some reports are saying that the numbers are recovering, but That is sometimes in part due to better research and better surveying techniques. The sad truth of the matter is because of habitat loss, because of 
reduce prey base, all the usual suspects, all of the pressures from the modern world, all of the subspecies are on the downturn. As a conservationist, having seen what's happening to them in places like Nepal and India and also in the Russian Far East, where not only did I learn about what it takes for the tiger to survive out there, but also what state it's in, because, you know, at our hands, I've been asked uh, several times about zoos and about captive populations and their importance with respect to saving species. You know, if the tiger is going to be extinct in the wild, surely it's important to have them and breed them in captivity. And that's where it becomes difficult. If, if the tiger risks becoming extinct in our lifetime, should we be keeping these wide-ranging, wild animals that need huge spaces, that have evolved to roam vast distances on their territory looking for prey? Should we keep them in captivity in what really equates to you or I being put in a dark phone box for the rest of their lives and the impact that has not only physiologically but also mentally on these beasts, this beautiful, magnificent species? Should we use captive situations as a fallback, as a safety net? And as much as you can probably tell how much I love these animals, I would say no. I would say if we can't succeed in protecting habitats that allow them to roam free, I personally don't believe we should be spending time and money and effort on captive populations that are suffering. We need to learn our lesson that if they go extinct in the wild, that's on us. And we have to spend more of our time and effort on protecting the natural world as a whole so that these species can live out there in the wild. So it's been a, a difficult experience for me to work in this profession, to learn from the experts out in the field about the reality of what we're causing and what the solutions might be. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, now we move on to Liz Bonin's Wild Caribbean. And you cover a lot of ground, from the Dominican Republic down to Trinidad and the South American coastline. How long did you spend there recording this amazing series? We spent a total of two months in the Caribbean. Well, actually, it was more than that, two blocks of five weeks each. It sounds more exotic and glamorous than it was. To film the wildlife in the more remote parts of the Caribbean was difficult in places like the Dominican Republic and Belize. It was quite the slog. But you know what? I don't know anybody who works in natural history or sciences or environmental documentaries that doesn't have a um, slightly deranged sense of drive, <laughs> that we love to push ourselves. We love the challenge of reaching more remote places, of telling the stories of people who may not have been filmed before, just to, to really kind of push our boundaries. So... There was a weird sense of enjoyment in how difficult it was to get to all these places. You know something? As a journalist, I visited virtually every country that you have visited, but you have produced these extraordinary accounts. You have visited more countries in South America than I have, and you have produced the most extraordinary stories for us all to have no, it's learned no good, from you. No good, so no good buttering me up. Mutual appreciation society I, I, here. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm making a serious point. That, oh, that's very that, kind. That it was possible for two retrievers of information uh -huh. to have a completely different experience. Yes. You managed to tap into wildlife. And I tried to wrestle with the humans. Yeah. And actually in this series... 
I come from there. I have indigenous, Caribbean indigenous blood in me. I know what the people of the Caribbean are like. And as somebody who grew up in the West, who was trained in the West, but who has worked in developing countries a lot, trying to tell the stories of their wildlife, I was at pains from the very get-go with my producers to make sure that the people of the Caribbean who are protecting wildlife, so a certain kind of demographic, got I don't want to say uh, was it, we're allowed their voice, that sounds very patronising and very colonial, but that we showed who they were and where their hearts lie. Because I think it's super important as storytellers to remind people in the West what it means to be human. So yes, we were featuring some of the most extraordinary, weird, wonderful, rare species, but hand in hand came the stories from the hearts and minds of those who are trying to protect it in order to just reignite that lost spark that we have in, in the West about what it means to be human and why nature matters. These people have grown up and lived connected to nature in a way that we haven't for a long time. We've become very disconnected from it. And they have an understanding of why the natural world matters that no book can teach you, that I didn't learn any better from a book in a university, you know, and I really wanted to showcase that in this series. You make me feel very guilty. You make me feel very How guilty. How on earth? Because I prattled on about the politics, all the sort of temporal stuff of human beings and their existence. And you were there telling us the roots of life in the Caribbean. I really, really feel like you're being too complimentary because it's all interconnected. We have to know the truth of who we are at our best and at our worst. We can't ignore the discomfort either. And that's something that I'm at pains to talk about you know, everywhere I go and in some other programs that I do make. So I think it's really vital that we tell both because also there's a danger of romanticizing who Caribbean people and South American people are by just showcasing a certain, as I mentioned, demographic. Mm -hmm. These are the people that get it. There's a lot of people in the Caribbean that don't, right, that are disconnected. We filmed in Venezuela and my gosh, what a complicated country, <laughs> to say the least, that is. So no, you know, it's, it's vastly, vastly important to tell both sides of the story of the human psyche. And I mean, there's no question that yours was a much more difficult, risky job. So but hats I've off to you. derived huge joy. It's just very interesting to meet you and to listen to you. But when the series was dreamt up, the first place you wanted to go to was Caroni Swamp. There was this extraordinary character called Lester. Ooh, Lester Nannan. So I mentioned Caroni Swamp as probably the most seminal wildlife experience I'd ever had in the Caribbean. And when this series got commissioned, the first thing I said to my production team was, we have to go to Caroni. We have to go down the boat. We have to go not at sunrise, but at sunset and watch the roosting of the scarlet ibis. That was my absolute first thing that came out of my head. And to take us down Carony Swamp was this individual called Lester Nannan, who is third generation guardian of Carony Swamp. And his story is extraordinary. His grandfather used to work on the plantations and because he couldn't feed his family with the meagre payments that he was given, he used to hunt the scarlet ibis. And actually, some people in Trinidad still hunt the bird for food, even though it's quite a scrawny bird and should never be. It's a wild animal. It shouldn't be hunted. But there's a lot of cultural, traditional significance to, to this. But anyway, his grandfather used to hunt them, but always felt wrong about doing so. And in time, he put away his rifle and decided to start protecting it. And he worked so hard to fight poachers and the criminal gangs that use that part of Trinidad from Venezuela to bring in all sorts of contraband of all types. And his son then took over the baton. So Lester's father was unfortunately beaten up by criminal gangs and, and succumbed to his injuries three days later. So it's a story of this Nanan family who have fought really hard to protect wildlife in the Caribbean. And again, it points to what we've been discussing. You know, it's not all light and rainbows. Not everybody in the Caribbean, you know, respects the wildlife that they are custodians of. And so I met Lester, third generation, who is so proud of his grandfather, who changed the way he lived to protect Caroni Swamp and all of the species in it, who lost his father to that fight, you know, and who now speaks of him with such passion and of Caroni Swamp with such passion. So that's exactly the example of what we set out to achieve in this series, not only showcasing one of the most magical wildlife spectacles on the planet, but also showcasing the humans that love it so much and want to protect it. So for me, it was the perfect story. It was really emotive. At one point, 
he had told me that when his father died three days after his injuries, the flamingos had returned to Carony Swamp for the first time in generations because of his father's and his grandfather's work. And as we sat there watching the beautiful scarlet ibis come in, in what is a visceral spiritual experience, right? It was just extraordinary. I was so glad to see it again. He was speaking about his father and these flamingos flew <laughs> overhead at sunset. And honestly, John, it was it was magical. And we looked at each other. Lester had tears in his eyes thinking about his father. And we had this most incredible moment, not only connecting to nature, but to each other. I worship the man. I'm such, I'm in love with him. He's the most extraordinary human and his story is, you know, really outstanding as well. So very special moment indeed. While you were in Trinidad, you had another special moment. You saw a white-fronted capuchin. Yes. I'm going to play a quick clip to set this up. Come on. Yes. <laughs> it's enough to make your heart stop beating. Here, here, here. Here, here. There he is, there he is, there he is. White fronted capuchin. There he is. There are only 50 mature adults left on the entire planet because they only exist here in Trinidad and here in Bush Bush. We don't even know how many there are. And to see one backlit against this most beautiful environment is just beyond words. Gosh, I mean, God, the, what the passion, the excitement we see throughout the series. But this was a rare treat. I mean, to be able to see this species with your own eyes. And I feel I've seen it just from listening. Sometimes I forget I'm being filmed and I'm like, they're, they're, they're like, oh, it's a little bit embarrassing. I don't think anybody likes to watch themselves back. But just listening to that again, you know, sometimes we work such long hours and it is a hard graft. And I tr really try very hard every time to take a moment and realize, you know, take stock. Do you realize what you're doing here, Liz? You know, don't forget it. But inevitably, when you're really, really tired, sometimes you don't take it all in. And listening back to that just sent me shivers down me. It's, I'm so lucky. There are only 50 of these incredibly smart social animals left on the entire planet and they happen to live in Trinidad and I got to see one as a wild animal biologist. So yeah, these are moments that are life-changing for me. So selfishly, program aside, the fact that I get to do this as a job, I still can't believe it, you know, but it was absolutely joyful and you don't see them very often. We were only there for a day. The chances of seeing one were very, very slim. And yet, I always think that the wildlife gods are looking after us when they go, ooh, you're telling our story. We're going to give you a little treat now. Here's a monkey. <laughs> I believe in that sometimes because it's so improbable that we succeed in our task when our schedules are so tight, you know, and we think, well, if we don't see one today, not to worry, we'll do something else, you know. But anyway, it was, yeah, it was really but special. But isn't there a danger that these beautiful creatures are on the way out? Absolutely. When you're talking about just 50 individuals mm. and also, you know, Trinidad is filled with people, actually the whole Caribbean, right? The, the people that we were showcasing are trying to protect the last remaining unique endemic species on their islands with literally no resources. So this was a team, the Field Naturalist Club, who just come together to try and protect it, to try and amass some information about these white-fronted capuchins when there's literally nothing about them in research. So they're up against some incredibly critically endangered species and with very little support from the rest of the planet when it comes to protecting them. And again, it's not just because they're really rare and really precious and so intelligent and so important. This is vital. We tend to forget that every animal has earned its right to be on this planet. It's evolved over millions of years to fill a niche and we ignore the importance of that. But not only that, they play a crucial role in keeping the planet healthy. So all this to say that, yes, it's critically endangered. Yes, it's highly likely that they will disappear off the face of the earth in this generation. But it's never been important for us all as a global community to understand why they matter, not just to Trinidad or the Caribbean, but to all of us. They contribute to the health of the planet. 
In episode three, you say that the Union Island gecko is one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen in your life. Mm. It could just be your natural exuberance, yeah, which we've seen in <laughs> full display today. So I won't hold you to the superlative, but can you tell me about the gecko? I'm I'm quite fickle, John. At every new thing I see, I go, that's the most beautiful thing. No, that's the thing I love most. Um, no, you'd have to have that exuberance <laughs> to survive. You'd it's, go bonkers. It's embarrassing, though. I'm so fickle. But anyway, it is a tiny, tiny little gecko. It weighs as much as a, as a pinch of salt. We're talking, you know, it's smaller than half my pinky. It's green with red spots surrounded by white. It's the most, it looks like a jewel. It's minuscule and it only exists in this dry forest on a tiny island called Union Island in the middle of the Grenadines. Talk about rare, 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 rare habitat, rare reptile. And when it was discovered just in 2005, immediately the whole exotic pet trade got all excited and swarmed to Union Island to gather as many of these precious little reptiles as possible. So very quickly, as soon as it was discovered, it became critically endangered. Now, what does that say about us as a species, really? You know, it's a sobering thought to think that that's how we treat newly discovered, extremely rare, extremely precious species. And so this little group of locals from Union Island decided to take it upon themselves, again, with no support globally, to patrol the forest and save their Union Island gecko. And because of their work, the population of Union Island geckos is going up again, but incredibly endangered, not least because the tourist industry and the big hotel chains are looking to build on that part of the forest, on that coastline. So they're up against a lot, but I've never met such passionate, hardworking, dedicated people who are saying, no, not on our watch. This is our island. This is our gecko and you will not create its extinction. You know, So it, it's a bittersweet story of what we do at our worst, but also what we can do at our best as humans. The rising human population has had a big impact on our planet's natural environment. And a topic that comes up in the series is species need to have the right quality and size of habitat mm. to ensure genetic diversity. Yeah. Can you tell me more about this? Yeah, a good example of that is the jaguar in Belize and all of its wildlife corridors that it needs across its entire range through some of the Central American countries and beyond. And it's lost a lot of its habitat and it's a wide-ranging species. And because of that, some pockets of jaguars have become isolated from others. And so as their numbers reduce, their genetic diversity reduces, and therefore their health is impacted. Uh. So it's vitally important to connect these patches in so-called more wildlife corridors to keep the populations of the last remaining jaguars healthy. But it's a really difficult challenge because you've got more people in these ranges, you've got villagers who need to grow some crops and have some livestock that are, some of them are being killed by jaguars now because jaguars have no more forest left. They've got no more food. They're starving. So they go into villages to look for food and there'll be a pig in a pen and they might eat the pig. So there's wildlife human conflict. And so conservationists there are working very hard with simple things like solar panelled light alarm systems at night that just flick on and off all night to deter the jaguars. But what this story illustrates is just, it's not about setting land aside for wildlife, it's about finding ways to coexist and accept that we live with wild animals and find ways to live peacefully. And there absolutely are ways to do so. Unfortunately, as a species, humans tend to prioritise profit and, and costs above all else. So we need to find ways to better understand, respect and revere the wildlife that we need that contributes to the health of our planet. We need to shift our perspective and then everything follows. But I think oftentimes, particularly in the West and certainly in the UK, we've eradicated all of our you know big, large predators and mammals a long time ago. We don't understand the value of the species that we used to share this country with. And in developing countries, it's somewhat the same, slightly different shape of it, but it's the same about not understanding how much we need those species in order for us to be able to thrive. So first and foremost comes a shift in perception of what we prioritise. And then we can work with a more long-term vision of coexisting with the natural world. The conservationists are the heroes of your series. It's hard to single out individuals and it's probably 
unfair to ask you to do that. So, can you tell me about Miss Jessie? <sighs> Miss Jessie reminded me of my aunts, my mom, my grandmothers, everybody all in one. She had this beautiful energy about herself. And she lives in Belize in a community or a set of villages where women run the show, John. And they have for quite a while. And things are working out rather well in these villages in Belize as a result. I'll just park that there. But also, actually in Belize, they have a real reverence for the black howler monkeys in their forests. And they always have. So that's quite special. They've always allowed them to come into their gardens and eat the figs from their trees. But because of habitat loss, the black howler monkey numbers were going down. And so I think it was back in the 80s, a group of men set up a conservation organization, a community project to protect the black howler monkeys. But the whole setup failed. It wasn't working very well and, the, and it wasn't really succeeding in protecting the monkeys. And so Miss Jessie and her girlfriends she re recruited a whole bunch of ladies from all the different villages and she said, we're going to take over the community project and we're going to do this right. And cut to a couple of decades later, they succeeded in helping the numbers to recover. Wow. But also they're really mindful about how communities and monkeys live together. So communities play a part in planting more trees and they're supported in their livelihoods all the while allowing the black howler monkey numbers to recover. So it's the perfect example of what we can do when we get things right and also how women tend to think somewhat differently <laughs> to men sometimes and uh, the way they think is hugely valuable when it comes to protecting our planet long into the future. How interesting. Well, because I know you love the water and diving, can you also tell me about your experience of coral farming? Oh, so this was on Myro in the Grenadines. And can I just mention an extraordinary, they were all extraordinary, by the way, all our contributors, but Marion Isaacs, this young lady from Myro, the smallest island, one of the smallest, or probably the smallest inhabited in the Grenadines. It's tiny, one road, one policeman, you know, it's, she comes from Myro. She loves her island. She loves her seas. All of her community are fisher people and they rely on the ocean for their livelihoods and they respect and love the ocean too. She went abroad and studied to bring back her skills to help protect her coral reefs. And she recruited all these fisher people who no longer had a livelihood because their ocean is too warm, the fish populations are decreasing and also their coral reefs are bleaching. And she got some advice from conservationists and scientists and is working on repopulating the coral reefs by replanting bits of elkhorn coral. It's a coral that doesn't succumb to warmer waters and the disease that comes with warmer waters and the way all the sailboats dump all their sewage into the water, right? And I got to do a bit with them, a bit of coral replanting, outplanting. We dived and we took some little pieces of elkhorn off these big elkhorn branches. So you only take a minimum amount. And then you bring them to a frame that they've set up, a set of frames in the water, and you stick them with a bit of eco-friendly putty and you leave them grow and they grow very fast. And then you take a bit off and you go back to the coral graveyards where all the coral has died and bleached and you plant the elk horn and then you let it grow. Amazing. It was extraordinary. And it it's was, working. It's working really well. However, when I, I'm still in touch with all our contributors and I'm still in touch with Marion. So she told me that this, we filmed in the, in the winter of this year, January, February. This summer, there was the largest coral bleaching event in the Caribbean waters because of climate change. Oh. She had to take herself away. She went abroad for a little bit just to breathe and to recoup her energies because a lot of the work that they had done has come to nothing in the sense that a lot of the elkhorn has died just because the waters are so warm. And so this is testament to the fact that there are heroes out there pulling out all the stops with very little resources in the middle of nowhere in a place you mightn't even have thought of as you go about your daily lives in the UK. And after all of their hard work, their heroic efforts, because of the way we live, it all comes to nothing. So it's a harsh reminder that we must, we must change the way we live to help support people like Marion and her team, but also to help support the planet. It's as simple as that. The series is full of ingenious and positive examples it is, of conservation work in the Caribbean. Was this very intentional? It, carrot, not stick? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, carrot, not stick, carrot and stick. 
I think as storytellers, we have to continue to challenge ourselves with respect to how we tell stories. We can do hard hitting for a certain audience. The stuff that you were doing in South America that we were speaking about, it's hugely important. We have to lean into the discomfort of what we've created, all, all of us, in the way we live. Personally, what I'd like to do as a storyteller is be more unapologetic about telling the good, the bad and the ugly. So absolutely, with all our stories, we're telling the truth about what's going on with this particular species. And let's not pretend anything other than species in the Caribbean are in real trouble. But will the politicians tolerate that kind of approach? Well... They have no choice because we're telling those stories. (laughs) But, you know, hand in hand with the truth of the matter, we wanted to make sure that people were watching it and could see not only that there's hope with respect to the work like Marion Isaacs, but also that this is what we can do as humans too. Make no mistake, if they can do it in the middle of nowhere with no resources, you can do something here in a much more so-called sophisticated society where you have a lot more resources to be able to help our planet. So I think... It's hugely inspirational, but we also have to be truthful. So we tell the truth of the animal and then we show a human being doing something amazing. And hopefully that inspires people here and all around the world to do something too. There are other social benefits to conservation. Can you tell me about James Galvez, who is known as Manatee Man in Belize and is trying to inspire other young people to follow him into the field. So his name is Jamal Galvez and he lives on a little lagoon called... I do apologise for giving him a James. (laughs) I wonder whether it's... No, I'm not going to pretend that it's the version of James. No, his name is Jamal Galvez and he lives in a tiny village called Manatee Point. I mean, come on. It's a lagoon where some of the last remaining healthy populations of manatees on the entire planet live. And when he was very young, a scrawny little 11-year-old, he saw this big flashy boat with some American scientists come into the lagoon and they were working to protect the manatee, to find out more about it and what it needed to survive so they could help other populations around the Florida coast, etc. He begged them, can I help you? Can I just load your boat? And they were like, you're too young. You're, maybe in a few years, we come back every year, just wait. He pushed and pushed and pushed and became really good friends with a scientist called Buddy who then took him under his wing and really helped him with his studies. Jamal is now a National Geographic explorer. He's one of the most impressive young individuals I have met in my life. He is wiser than any conservationist in the West that I've ever met. And he's working to protect his manatees that he loves. But, you know, when it comes to social opportunities like that, it goes two ways. He has far more knowledge about the manatee because he lives alongside it. So it's more about us recognising that these are the rightful custodians of that wildlife. And we need to not only just include, we need to make them like lead authors, head conservationists. We need to recognise that it's not just money for American studies or British studies. Money should be globally distributed to allow these experts that he was even at 11 because he knows that coastline like the back of his hand, allow them to do their job. And that's very much what Buddy was doing. He recognised his gifts, his passion, his expertise, and just give him opportunities, but that he was really rightfully entitled to, right? So I think it's about reframing how we perceive local knowledge coming in, you know, sort of, there's a term, it's helicopter conservation, right? Buddy is not one of those. He absolutely respects and understands the importance of Belizeans' knowledge. But I think it's a lesson for all of us to take on when when it comes to protecting our entire planet together. You also visit Costa Rica. And you say it feels like a country that's got its act together when it comes to its relationship with nature. I couldn't agree with more. It's an oasis when you get there. You think this is unlike anywhere else in Central America or the Caribbean. It is. It's very special, not least because of its energy. And that comes back to how people feel about the nature on their doorstep. Now, that's not to say that Costa Rica isn't facing some challenges and sure. is, you know, obviously looking for progress and has intensive farms, etc. But I think one of the key moments in its history is when in 1949 it decided to get rid of its army and instead pump all of that money into societal well-being, education, basic human rights and sustainable projects. So it means that by the time they realised that because of agriculture they had gotten rid of a lot of their forests, their rainforests, and there was a crisis on their hands, when the government said to people, we need to get better at this, we need to protect more land, are you on board? People were on board because they had been led properly, they had been properly taken care of, and they'd stayed connected to the importance of nature. And so that really points to the importance of good leadership. 
Okay, I'm just going to let that float there when it comes to maybe how we live in this country and other parts of the West. Good leadership, taking care of your society, making sure that they stay connected to nature creates magic. And I think Costa Rica, even though they still have some challenges to face and to overcome, is a shining example of what we can achieve when you have good leadership, connection to nature and real connection to community. It's fascinating because it's exactly what I've found as a reporter. Arriving in a country, suddenly, sort of light years away from some of its neighbours. Yeah. Quite extraordinary. And it's a developing country. So yeah. what does that tell you about what we've gotten right or wrong when it comes to progress? Well, it, the biggest thing it tells you is it's all possible. It's all possible. It's all possible. But we have to shift our priorities, don't we? Are you an optimist? I often ask this question, but you? as you're a biologist working in conservation and with empirical evidence, your answer is especially meaningful. I've got to be careful about how I answer it then, don't I? <laughs> well... Well, in the sense that, you know, of I am I an optimist? I My optimism has been challenged, John. I'm not going to lie. I think as a biologist, all I wanted to do was make programs about tigers and animal uh -huh. behavior. And then very quickly, I was made aware of what was happening to our planet. And then as a biologist who has a science brain, who doesn't understand economics and politics like you do, I had to lean into what was happening in our society to stop us from fixing the problems we were causing to our planet as we succeeded and progressed as nations. And so now I have a better understanding of what we prioritize is destroying our life support system. So what do we need to do? I have a better understanding of how everything is interconnected. And so from that, I got a little bit depressed and a little bit overwhelmed and didn't think that we could come out the other side. With COP28 and the current president of COP28, who's the CEO of the largest fossil fuel company in the UAE, and what he said a couple of days ago, that we can't really phase out fossil fuels, it's not realistic, that makes me want to pull my hair out and lose some optimism. However, in my job, I also get to spend time with extraordinary people like those in the Caribbean and all around the world who know what we need to do, who fight night and day. And I will also say that I've learned that environmental law organizations are taking polluters and governments to task and winning cases all around the world. We don't hear about that in the news enough, but there's a lot of progress being made behind the scenes. So if our leaders can't do what they need to do, our business communities and our communities themselves can be the change the planet needs. And that's where I find my hope and my optimism. And that's who I work with now to share their stories more, to inspire others to see. Look, lean into the discomfort. You can't ignore it. But trust me, there's a lot of hope there. There are a lot of incredible human beings really fighting the good fight. So I still believe we can, we can change things. Liz Bonin. Where are you off to next? I'm staying home for a bit, John. Oh, come, come. <laughs> no, well, look. Can the Caribbean carry on? <laughs> I, we're hoping for series two because there's still so many stories to tell. But I do travel far less than I used to for obvious reasons. It's my responsibility to. And I make the programs that I feel are still really important and justified when it comes to creating the transformation in our society that we need. But I work at home, on the ground, more now, because it's just as valuable. It's just as important. Programs alone won't fix this. We've got to share stories in different ways, which is why I'm so delighted to be on your podcast, you know. And um, I'm taking a rest as well, because I need it. <laughs> I think you deserve it. <laughs> I want to thank you very much indeed. I mean, what an what amazing conversation. Thank uh, you. Liz Bonin, thank you very much indeed for taking us to the Caribbean, taking us to these really taxing and difficult issues, but giving us hope. Thank you, John. It's been an absolute honour. That was the biologist and broadcaster Liz Bonin, and you can watch all four episodes of Liz Bonin's Wild Caribbean on the BBC iPlayer. There's a link in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. <laughs>